Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. It's always, uh, it's always nice to get a clear, uh, a clear introduction. I've been doing a, a book tour recently and I went to, uh, started in Cleethorpes and uh, very kindly the mayor introduced me, said, one person who needs no introduction from me is Mr. Nick Sheridan. <laughs> went on to, to Birmingham, to one of those little local radio stations and a uh, nice girl in reception kept me waiting for a bit, finally said, she said, you can go through to the studio now, Mr. Ned Sheridan Morley. It doesn't only happen to me that I was doing the book tour in uh, Harrogate with the, at a literary lunch with the great Bamber Gascoigne and we were having a, a drink beforehand and a little Yorkshire woman came and stood in front of Bamber for quite some time, peered at him. Eventually she went up to him and said, are you Bamber Gascoigne? And he said, yes I am actually. She said, by God, you photograph well. <laughs> the, great, uh, the great danger spot is... Um, is taxis. I was in a taxi the other day and the guy looked around suspiciously for quite some time and eventually he turned around and said, weren't you something on the Antiques Roadshow? <laughs> and I got into another cab at Broadcasting House and the man said, um, you want the Barbican, don't you? I said, no, World's End Chelsea. He said, oh, I thought it was that bald-headed Australian bugger what lives in the Barbican. <laughs> he thought I was Clive James. <laughs> Robin Day told me, he was in a taxi the other day and the man said, uh, Oh, that question time's gone down the tubes, hasn't it? And Robin said, I swelled with legitimate pride. And then he ruined the whole thing by saying, hasn't been the same since they got rid of that Peter Sissons. <laughs> Going into the broadcasting house one day, I bumped into a, well, coming out was a dispatch rider dressed rather like one of those deep sea divers with a great diver's bell over his head. And he got very excited. Said, oh, 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 oh. So I said, put up your visor. Uh, and uh, then I could understand what he was saying. He said, how are your two sons? I said, I don't have any sons. I've got two very nice nephews in Somerset. He said, you are Desmond Wilcox, aren't you? <laughs> it's bad enough to have discovered Esther Ransom without being accused of marrying her. <laughs> <laughs> Happens in reverse the other day, to, uh, two summers ago, to Alan Corran. Uh, Alan Corran was at a, a BAFTA uh, party, a reception for the great black actor Sidney Poitier and uh, he was introduced to Sidney Poitier and he said, oh Mr. Poitier, it's so wonderful to meet you I'm a lifelong fan, I've admired everything you've done I've seen every film I think they're all wonderful and I have to tell you that my favourite song will always be the Banana Boat song <laughs> didn't go down too well uh, um, the um, other odd, the oddest thing I think that ever occurred was uh, at Gatwick Station. About 11 o'clock, I was on Gatwick Station with Keith Waterhouse, and a little man came out of the shadows and said, Excuse me, I don't wish to be rude, but are you Lloyd Grossman? <laughs> the understandable one was, um, was at uh, World's End getting out of a taxi, uh, and I tipped the guy, and uh, he said, Go on, tell us your name. So I said, Ned Sharon. He said, oh, thank Christ, I was going to tell the wife I had that Patrick Moore in the back of my cab. <laughs> had a taxi driver yesterday. I asked him what the ideal tip for a taxi driver was. He said, don't pick up the Marquis of Blandford. <laughs> now, as I say, the, the, as uh, Peter said, the, the following uh, entertainment had to, had to cancel. So I'm doing... 
um, twice the length. There, there will be the interval after 55 minutes. Uh, so if anybody wants to go, you can go discreetly in 55 minutes, and there'll be another 45 to come afterwards. Um, I did have one request this evening. Um, I don't know how many of you listen to, to Radio 4, but I do a, um, a Saturday morning show on Radio 4, and I've had about three people in the car park said, we missed the monologue this morning, would you mind doing it? Um, so um, we'll start off, rather than going straight into theatrical anecdotes, with this morning's loose ends monologue. It's all very topical. Now the news, the most important event of the week was clearly the visit of President Clinton. Now I understand there's no truth in the rumor that when his plane landed at Heathrow, his first words were, take me to Tiggy Leg Burke, I'll meet your leader later. The smiles were anything to go by. His visit was a huge success. I think uh, all of us can feel proud that at last we have a prime minister who can hold his own against any American president when it comes to dentistry. <laughs> visit ended with an intimate little dinner for four and several hundred photographers at the Pont de la Tour. Terence Conran's little calf down at Tower Bridge. The bill came to nearly 300 pounds and President Clinton left a very good tip. Be careful which women you invite up to your hotel room. <laughs> Wasn't only President Clinton who was charmed by the Prime Minister, Mr. Yeltsin, or New Boris, as he's now known. <laughs> told uh, Tonsky, after a breakfast of caviar, blinis, and salmon, You have good eyes, bright mind, right age, and good experience. For a moment, Tone must have wondered whether he was at a summit meeting or out on a date. Meanwhile, back in England, the footballer Eric Cantona, Le Grand Derrick, announced that he was copywriting the crowd chant, Ooh, Ah, Cantona. People who know about that sort of thing say he could make a merchandising fortune. Graham Taylor must be furious that he didn't register, Do I Not Like That, and any turnip with a face on it. And who knows what riches could be achieved with You're a Wanker, Charlie George. <laughs> Football supporters, meanwhile, have already come up with a slogan. Fulham supporters have come up with a slogan to welcome their new owner, On Your Ed, Al Fayed. <laughs> the, the, Harrods boss is, um, the Harrods boss is prepared to spend £30 million buying new players, but it must make a change from buying old politicians. <laughs> Finally, on the subject of football, um, England play Poland tonight. It started already in an important world qualifier. Glenn Hoddle and his lads are determined to win, but if it all goes pear-shaped, as the Queen Mother likes to say, uh, then with the game being shown on Channel 5, they'll at least have the consolation of knowing that nobody saw it. <laughs> this was also the week in which we saw the unacceptable face of Camelotism. Uh, Chris Smith, the Heritage Secretary, hit the ground fuming. Well, it makes a change from running. Uh, when the lottery company's directors revealed that they'd given themselves pay rises of up to 90%. The minister demanded that sweeping changes be made. He particularly wants to replace the balls in the lottery machine, and I think we know with whose. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be delighted to hear that uh, the female elephants in the Kruger National Park in South Africa finally got a decent night's sleep this week after scientists took them off the pill. It seems that the estrogen implants in the females drove the bull elephants wild. It was as though they'd sprayed themselves with impulse. The bulls, the bulls were under the impression that the females were permanently on heat and subjected them, according to one observer, to endless and unwarranted attention. Or to put it another way, they were behaving just like scaffolders. 
Finally, um, let's leave the ground punning with one excruciating postscript to the presidential visit. Uh, when he learned that the Prime Minister played guitar, Bill Clinton wanted to have a jam session, but Tone had to tell him, sorry, no sax, please, we're British. I did say it was excruciating. Right, now... We're basically here to, to, do to talk about theatrical anecdotes. They're not those sort of theatrical anecdotes that go, oh, the scenery fell down, my, how we laughed. Um, it's really, I'm more interested in the tensions and the scandal and the emotional and the emotions and the sparkling wit that one gets in that sort of uh, blast furnace of going to a, towards a production. Um, the fascination about... Uh, collecting theatrical anecdotes is trying to authenticate them, trying to make sure you've got the, the phrasing right and trying to make sure that they're applied to the right person because uh, theatrical anecdotes about famous drinkers tend to be handed down uh, apocryphally to each generation of theatrical drinkers and similarly theatrical wit tends to be handed down and the, the current famous wit, whether it be Mrs. Patrick Campbell or Coral Brown or Maggie Smith or Noel Card or whoever, uh, they tend to be, to be passed down. It's quite interesting trying sometimes to find out uh, what the origins were. I suppose the archetypal theatrical anecdote is the one I'm sure you've all heard about Richard III. There were two uh, heavily drinking actors who were in a production of Richard III, and one was playing the, uh, the king, Richard III, and the other was playing the Duke of Buckingham. And they had a very liquid lunch, and they staggered to the theatre. And the curtain rose, and Richard III tottered down to the footlights and said, Now is the winter of our discontent. The voice in the gallery yelled, You're drunk! And he said, You think I'm drunk? Wait till you see the Duke of Buckingham! <laughs> well, I always thought, as I first heard that story, uh, that it applied to two famous, great actors, but famous drinkers, Robert Newton and Wilfred Lawson. Uh, then I did my research and found that neither of them had ever appeared in either of those roles or indeed in that play. Cedric Hardwick, in his autobiography, puts it back somewhere in the 19th century but doesn't know who. Peter O'Toole, in his splendid first uh, volume of autobiography, ascribes it with no justification at all to Edmund Keane and uh, Cook, George Cook, two great 18th century tragedians. I suspect that it uh, lies back in the mists of some touring company, people's actors sleeping under hedgerows and fitting up in barns. The funny thing was that when I brought out the book of theatrical anecdotes, a young actor came up to me and said, I don't understand all that fuss you made about authenticating the Richard III story. I mean, everybody knows it was Peter O'Toole and Richard Harris. Uh, and of course, neither of them has ever appeared in the play. So you have to try and track it down. Similarly with the, with the wits, uh, the, one of the perhaps most famous Noel Coward story concerns the, the coronation. Looking around, I can see not many of you can actually remember the coronation, but for those of us who can, it was a, a damp, a wet day, and the great, one of the great moments in the procession uh, was the open carriage in which uh, the enormous Queen Salote of Tonga uh, sat opposite the tiny little Sultan of Kelantan, uh, and the story goes that as the procession went by, one balcony on which uh, Noel Coward had a seat, somebody nudged him and said, who's that little man sitting opposite Queen Salote? And he said, her lunch. <laughs> uh, now, I, I disproved that authoritatively uh, because Coward always said it was in very bad taste that Queen Salote was a great friend of his and she would have been very annoyed if it had got back to her. Um, so um, I thought that was, that was that. And then I got a letter from very good actor John Moffat, 
who'd been in a production of Shaw's The Apple Cart at the Haymarket Theatre at the time, and he swears that when Coward came to the evening performance, he was standing by the stage door, and uh, he said to Coward, who was that little man opposite uh, Queen Salote, and Coward said, her lunch. Uh, so I thought I had to put that in the, in the new edition of the book. Then I bumped into Graham Payne, Coward's lifelong companion, and asked, and was telling him about these difficulties. He said, oh, it wasn't Noel at all. Uh, it was Noel standing on the balcony. It was Noel who asked, and it was David Niven who said her lunch. <laughs> so you see how difficult it is tracking it down. I was doing a, a sort of charity after dinner for the Duke of Edinburgh's fund the other day, and I, I was telling uh, that long rigmarole, and suddenly I could see the Duke on top table going, me, 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 me. So I thought, you're not, not interrupting me when I've just started. I, we'll, we'll check on it afterwards. And uh, I said, why were you waving during the Queen Salote story? And he said, well, that's incredible. He said, you see, uh, a few years after the coronation, we had Britannia off Malaya, and uh, uh, we had a big dinner for all the sultans. And they all came on board. We had a very good meal, very good, very jolly evening. And after the evening, when everybody was very relaxed, I said, come on now, which one of you was her lunch? And they all screamed with laughter and pointed one. And little Sultan of Kelantan said very proudly, me, I was, I was her lunch. <laughs> uh, and uh, so uh, at least it shows that uh, whoever first said it, it's gone round the world. <laughs> it's not only in uh, theatrical anecdotes that you get this, uh, this problem. Um, political ones are equally difficult to track down. There's a famous story of uh, George Brown, the Labour politician, when he was Foreign Secretary going to a diplomatic reception uh, in Brasilia. And uh, George was also quite handy with the glass or didn't have a very strong uh, resistance to the effects. And uh, he was standing next to a very tall, imposing figure in a purple dress. And the band suddenly struck up. And he said, Madam, will you waltz? And the tall, imposing figure in the purple dress said, no, Mr. Brown, for three reasons. One, this is not a waltz. Two, it is the national anthem of Peru. <laughs> and three, I am the Cardinal Archbishop of Lima. <laughs> now, I was, I was terribly happy with that story until Peter, Peter Patterson's biography of uh, George Brown came out. And in it, uh, Peter proved conclusively that George had never been to South Africa before, during, or after his period as Foreign Secretary. Mercifully, in this case, uh, Lord Charlton, junior minister at the time, comes to our, our aid. He swears that he was there when George said it, but it happened in, uh, in Vienna, and it was the Archbishop of Vienna. But I just like the, the role of the Cardinal Archbishop of Lima. seems to have more punch to it to me. Similarly, with sporting stories, the, the great middle-distance XMP runner, um, Sebastian Coe. I've been trying to track down this story uh, for a long time. Uh, it happened at Lords a couple of summers ago, and every time I go to Lords, I ask questions about it, and they're always very shady about it, which makes me believe that it probably is true. Apparently, it was a test match, and Sebastian Coe had been invited to one of those hospitality boxes, uh, and he arrived a bit late, uh, and he proffered his ticket. Uh, but the club servants and everybody who's been to Lords will know how rude the club servants at Lords can be. Uh, they looked at the ticket and said, wrong gate, go around the other side. And he said, you don't understand. I mean, this is awful. I'm, 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 I'm an invitee. I'm late. It's very rude. The match has started. I'm terribly keen on cricket. Uh, please let me in. They said, wrong gate, go around the other side. He made the fatal mistake of saying, uh, don't you know who I am? They said, no. I am Sebastian Coe. Right, you'll be able to run around the other gate all the quicker, won't you? <laughs>
Um, the, uh, to make it easier for me to remember them, apart from the, the, the little notes here, um, the, these theatrical stories are arranged in alphabetical order. We go from Geoffrey Archer to Pia Zadora. Geoffrey Archer, a playwright, Lord Archer of Western Supermare, the only seaside pier on which Danny LaRue has not performed. <laughs> Under... Under the A's, I'm very keen on the two, the two Atkinses, Robert Atkins and uh, Eileen Atkins. Robert Atkins is a great old Shakespearean actor. Back before the First World War, he helped Lillian Baylis found the old Vic uh, Theatre. And then he, with Sidney Carroll, founded the great open-air theatre in Regent's Park uh, and uh, made it a, de a delight. His son, Ian Atkins, became a very distinguished television director. It was Ian who told me that towards the end of Robert's life, this great old Shakespearean, must have been the 60s, I suppose, uh, was ill and he was in hospital. But being a supreme professional, he was still practicing his voice production, uh, making it be, it keep rich and round. Uh, and he was sort of sitting there in bed and outward rolled, to be or not to be. Uh, and that all went on quite well for some time. And then the matron came over one day and said, excuse me, Mr. Atkins, we've all loved your Shakespearean recitations, but um, you see the screen around the bed next door. There's a very old gentleman in that, that bed. And he's, um, he's, well, he may, uh, to be frank, he may not last the night. And he has asked me to tell you that he would prefer to have no more Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I, I understand, my dear. I will desist. Matron went away happy. Next thing the old boy behind the screen knew was Robert's leonine head had come round the corner of the screen and said, I hear you don't like Shakespeare. I also hear you're about to meet him. Eileen, uh, Eileen Atkins was no, uh, no relation. She's a wonderful actress, currently just had a, a huge success at the National Theatre with Paul Schofield and Vanessa Redgrave in John Gabriel Borkman. But uh, back in the 60s, when I, uh, that was the period, I think, when the women were burning their bras, wasn't it? Uh, and Eileen's always been what uh, uh, the great soft porn American filmmaker Russ Meyer calls insufficiently cantilevered here. <laughs> And she was going into Harrods shopping one day, and uh, she got a shopping list, and she was just going in, and it was one of those scaffolding um, things uh, with workmen on it who were doing the usual thing of whistles and catcalls and insults uh, and invitations. They were shouting to young women as they went by. And Eileen was going into shop, and as they, she went by, one of them looked down and said, Only worth her burning her bra, was it? Absolutely livid. She shot into Harrods. She got more and more annoyed as she bought all her, her purchases. Finally, she came out absolutely fuming. She rushed up to the scaffolding, looked up at them and said, I suppose you've all got small cocks, but I don't go around shouting about it. <laughs> turned on a heel and went up the street, and it wasn't until she turned the corner that she realized she'd come out of a quite different door. <laughs> 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 Under the... Uh, under the bees, a sort of musical one, perhaps, first, um, Sir Thomas Beecham, who had some wonderful things to say. The English may not like music, but they absolutely love the noise it makes. Uh, there are two golden rules for an orchestra, start together and finish together. The audience don't give a damn what goes on in between. There's one which might be apocryphal. I've heard it applied to, to in various other circumstances, but this is the earliest sighting I have of this story. 
Sir Thomas was supposed to be in um, Fortnum and Mason's one day doing a little shopping. And very crowded, but across the crowded Fortnum's he saw a woman who looked familiar, but whom he couldn't place, sort of waving at him. And he thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to do that thing. Of, if she comes across, perhaps she won't, but it's going to be very difficult because I can't place her and I'm going to have to ask all those leading questions. Anyway, uh, she did, of course, find her way to him. She said, how are you, Sir Thomas? I'm very well. He said, and how are you? She said, I'm very well indeed, Sir Thomas. Sort of awkward silence. He was still trying to place her. And he said, and, and uh, how is your husband? Very well indeed, Sir Thomas. So glad about that. Still no clue. How are your sons? They're both extremely well, she said. That's oh, very good. How is your brother? Still king, Sir Thomas. <laughs> He was also, uh, I thought he was the man who once said, try everything in life except incest and folk dancing. Uh, <laughs> but I find that turns up in the, bio, another, uh, the autobiography of another conductor, Sir Arnold Bax. But uh, Sir Thomas did say of another conductor, Sir Adrian Bolt came to see me this morning, positively reeking of Horlicks. Also out of the bees, we've got uh, there's John, John Barrymore. That's another sort of disputed uh, premise of this story. But uh, Barrymore was a great uh, American Shakespearean actor who had great success here in, the, uh, in London at in the, uh, the Haymarket in the late 20s, 30s uh, with his, his Hamlet. When he went back to America, he was lecturing on one occasion uh, to some American schoolgirls. And one of them said, uh, Mr. Barrymore, did, uh, did uh, Hamlet have a physical relationship with Ophelia? And uh, Barrymore said, well, she certainly did in the Chicago company. <laughs> One of my happiest uh, memories recently has been uh, doing, uh, directing um, Keith Waterhouse's play, Jeffrey Bernard is Unwell, with, with Peter O'Toole. And it went so well, first of all, at the Apollo, uh, Peter in the first place, and then Tom Conti and uh, uh, James Bolan played it afterwards, that a couple of years later, Peter O'Toole wanted to revive it in a much larger theatre, the Shaftesbury, which sat about uh, 1300 uh, uh, for a limited season. And uh, we all thought this was tempting fate, but uh, went ahead with it. And uh, we were amazed, uh, Keith Waterhouse and I, to open our Sunday mirrors in our different household one morning and find that Geoffrey had uh, written his piece. He had a column not only in The Spectator, but also one in The Sunday Mirror then. And he wrote this piece saying, uh, it's absolutely incredible. I went to the play the other night. It was jam-packed, they were hanging from the rafters, rolling in the aisles, couldn't have believed they'd fill that vast space, <coughs> went round to have an o a drink with O'Toole, he had the uh, vodka and soda, Jeffrey's favourite tipple, waiting, oh, just absolutely fantastic. And uh, he bumped into Keith at the Groucho Club um, in Soho on the Tuesday, and Keith said, what was that rubbish you wrote in the, in the mirror? He said, well, it was extraordinary, Keith, you know. Imagine full house laughing in the aisles, rolling in the aisles, hanging from the rafters, O'Toole, with the vodka and soda. And Keith said, Geoffrey, we don't open for six weeks. <laughs> and Geoffrey said, you mean I dreamt it? And Keith said, yes. And obviously what he'd done, he'd gone to bed pissed, uh, dreamt that all these royalties were going to come in, he was going to be rich again, uh, woken up, remembered he had a deadline, tottered to the typewriter and typed out uh, his, his sort of bottom's dream, isn't it, really? Uh, and nobody at the Sunday Mirror had the sense to check whether the play had opened or not. <laughs> Thank God it was a full house when it opened six weeks later. Uh, Under the Bees also an American one, uh, uh, one of the, I don't, 
really like those uh, very short, smart, um, one-line notices that uh, critics who think they're witty occasionally write. But there's one I'm, I'm in fond of, which is uh, Robert Benchley's great Algonquin Broadway wit. Uh, and he'd been to see uh, a play called Aby's Irish Rose, which had run in New York for about five years. And I think Benchley had been sent to see it once a year and was getting very bored with the idea of going to see this, this piece. So after, when he went for the third or fourth time, his review read simply, uh, Hebrews 13.8. Uh, and I'm sure all of you who are going to church tomorrow will know what the text of Hebrews 13.8 is. It simply says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. <laughs> coming, uh, coming back home, there was a wonderful old grand dame of the theater, Lillian uh, Braithwaite, uh, who's a great friend of the composer-actor Ivan Novello. And they used to have a little sort of pact that whenever one of the one of their plays, uh, they would, if they opened in a plays roughly at the same time, whichever one finished first, the other would go and see the first matinee of their friends. And uh, of course, Ivan Novello's plays always ran five years, and Dame Lillian's, I don't know, five months, five weeks, five days. Uh, so invariably, she was the first one to go and pay this, uh, this compliment. Uh, and indeed, so it happened with one of Novello's big musicals, and Dame Lillian, as soon as her play came off, went to the first Wednesday matinee. And, um, took a friend with her, and they sat in the stalls and listened to these great swooning tunes and marveled at the lavish scenery and the gorgeous costumes on the stage, and tune after tune wafted out from the orchestra pit. And then in the second half, one particularly spectacularly big tune uh, came swelling out, and uh, suddenly the, uh, the friend stiffened and nudged Dame Lillian and said, oh, naughty Ivor, that's an old Welsh hymn. Dame Lillian said, that's more than you can say for its composer, dear. <laughs> Carl, uh, Carl Brown, I suppose, is the great uh, wit of the uh, mid and late uh, 20th century, a wonderful exotic actress who came over at the end of the 20s from Australia, and immediately uh, everybody realized how beautiful and how she was and how sharp was her wit. Uh, she immediately uh, began to be looked after by a powerful impresario called Firth Shepherd, and she used to say, Firth is my shepherd, I shall not want, he maketh me to lie down. <laughs> she had a wonderful turn of phrase. Uh, uh, acting with a dull actor was always likened to act, it's like acting with half a hundred way to condemned veal. Uh, and acting with a busy actor was like watching a rat up a rope. Um, she was first married to a very nice actor who later became an agent called Philip Pierman. And on one occasion she was going to um, going to Moscow with the Stratford Memorial Company uh, in production of King Lear, and she was playing Goneril. And uh, she thought, well, it'd be very nice, you know, my husband's an actor, surely King Lear, a lot of parts in King Lear, surely they can find something for Philip in that. Uh, so um, she went to the producers and said, can't you find a part for Philip? And uh, they said, well, Carl, we have thought about that, but it's very, we can't see any single part for Philip in, in King Lear. There doesn't seem to be any. She said, give me the text. So they handed her the script, rifled through the pages. There you are, perfect part. And they looked over eagerly to see what she'd found. She said, there you are, a camp near Dover. <laughs> she was... Uh, in between marriages, she later married very happily Vincent Price, the great uh, uh, horror actor. Uh, but in between, she was in that memorable production at the Old Vic of A Midsummer Night's Dream, in which Frankie Howard played Bottom, directed by... Uh, Michael Bentall, designed by James Bailey. Great success, but as always with 
productions, the actors met on the first day of rehearsal to sit round a table and read the play. And Connell found herself sitting next to a nice actor called David Dodemede. And uh, then, just as they were sort of chatting away, her attention was distracted. She suddenly saw a terribly handsome young man, who's obviously in the cast, come through the rehearsal room doors. And she nudged Dodemede and said, oh, I quite fancy that. And uh, David said, I don't think he's playing on your team, Coral. She said, want to bet? Uh, and so they bet a pound, quite a lot of money in those days, they bet a pound that she would seduce him that night. And then they had the reading, and then they had the rehearsal, and David was a little dim to see Coral leaving arm in arm with this young actor at the end of the thing. So he said, well, there goes a pound, never mind. And next morning, she came racing across the room straight at him and said, I owe you 17 shillings and sixpence. <laughs> I, <laughs> I found myself on sort of on the wrong end of the tongue on one occasion. Um, I was working as a producer for Columbia Pictures at the time, and I was rung up one morning by the vice president of Columbia Pictures, who said uh, he was South African. He said, "Look, a, a family friend, a son of some friends of mine, uh, has just arrived from uh, South Africa today, uh, and he's totally new to London, and I have to go out of town on some." opening tonight, so I can't look after him this evening. Could you possibly give him dinner and just explain to him sort of where everything is and the lie of the land and what to see and where to go? So I said, yes, of course, and uh, he arrived at 7.30, and I opened the door, and there was, it was rather disconcerting. There was this ravishing-looking Disney prince uh, standing in the doorway. I promise you I behaved impeccably throughout the <laughs> evening uh, and afterwards, and... Uh, <laughs> We went to the restaurant, and we were just sort of in the middle of the meal when suddenly my heart sank a little when I saw Coral and uh, her friend Jill Melford come into the restaurant. Uh, and I thought, we're going to have to run the gauntlet at some time. Uh, and we finished our meal first, of course, and went past, and I said, I don't think you know, this is Mr. Jeremy Railton, Miss Jill Melford, Miss Coral Brown. And they both looked him up and down for what seemed an age, because he was staggeringly good-looking. Uh, and I began to be embarrassed by this and thought I'd better fill the gap and said, uh, uh, he, uh, he just arrived from South Africa this morning. And Coral said, ah, yes, got the tripwires out at Waterloo Station again, have we? <laughs> I think her, almost her finest uh, gesture, uh, it does, uh, I'm afraid, demand a, a four-letter word, but uh, I'm sure with the sophistication of this particular festival you can take that. Um, she was immensely proud of one of her last uh, acting roles, which was uh, in Alan Bennett's uh, An Englishman Abroad, the story of her visit on another Royal Shakespeare Company visit to, uh, to Moscow, where she met Guy Burgess. And uh, it, An Englishman Abroad was a huge success here, won all the awards, and then went to America and won all the Emmys and was equally celebrated there. And they were all terribly proud of their, their work. And Coral was at a reception one day, and uh, she met a, an indifferent American writer who came up and said, oh, Coral, I, I just thought that an Englishman abroad was fantastic. Thank you very much, she said. I thought your performance, Coral, was out of this world. Thank you very much. And I thought Alan Bates, as Guy Burgess, was sensational. Thank you very much. And I thought John Schlesinger's direction was just, just terrific. Thank you very much. I only had one little query, he said. He said, what was that? Well, I was a little worried about the quality of the writing. She said, the quality of the writing? 
you couldn't write fuck in the dust on a Venetian blind. <laughs> I think that, that's, what I, that's what I call flying the flag for British writing abroad. <laughs> Under the seas, an equally powerful phrase maker was uh, Mrs. Patrick Campbell. Um, Mrs. Patrick Campbell was a great uh, um, exotic uh, actress at the turn of the century. Um, she was the one who coined the phrase uh, uh, marriage is like exchanging the hurly-burly of the chaise long for the deep peace of the double bed. And she was the one who said during the Oscar Wilde trial about homosexuality, it's all right as long as they don't do it in the street and frighten the horses. <laughs> she also, um, those were the days when uh, leading playwrights, if they wanted a star actor, would tend to go around and read the play. Shaw or Pinero, or in this case, Henry Arthur Jones, an act, uh, a playwright rather like Pinero, uh, would you know go to the leading actresses or actors' place and read the play to them? And Henry Arthur Jones had a play that he wanted uh, Coral to do. The only trouble about Henry Arthur Jones, he had a slight Cockney accent and dropped his H's. And he went and read this very long play, probably five acts, uh, to Mrs. Pratt, who was lying back on her chaise long in the Gloucester Road. And um, at the end of it, she said, "It's very long, Mr. Jones, even without the H's." <laughs> Under, uh, under C, we also have casting. I, my favorite casting story is about, a, um, he's not gone now, a Granada television casting director called John Murphy, uh, who used, to, at the end of the day's work, like to go to an actor's club off uh, Shaftesbury Avenue called Jerry's Club. And at Jerry's Club, he would um, have a couple of drinks. And uh, Jerry's Club is one of those places in which out-of-work actors often find work as waiters or barmen. And uh, on this occasion, John Murphy was, uh, he got his drink and he looked at the barman piercingly and he said, I've seen you somewhere. You were brilliant. And the actor barman said, uh, I don't think so, Mr. Murphy. I, I don't think so. And he said, no, I've seen you somewhere. Royal Shakespeare Company. And the guy said, no, I've, n I've never had the privilege of working with the Royal Shakespeare Company, Mr. Murphy. I've seen you somewhere. The National Theatre. It must have been at the National Theatre. I was there several times last month. Mr. Murphy, I have never been invited to play at the National Theatre. I've seen you somewhere. You were terrific. Mr. Murphy, I have been out of work for three years. In fact, for the last two, I have been on the cheese counter at Harrods. That's where I saw you. You were brilliant. Um, we, we did one Noel Coward one at the beginning. I had a I shared a doctor for one, at one time with, uh, with Coward, Patrick uh, Woodcock, and uh, he once made the mistake of complaining to Coward that as he was getting older, he was getting these lapses of memory, and he rather sort of pretentiously referred to them as lacunae. And ever afterwards, whenever he bumped into Coward, Coward would say, ah, here comes the lily of lacunae. <laughs> he had an accountant uh, whom he wasn't too keen on, I uh, didn't think, I think he'd uh, you know, lost him some money, hadn't been very clever with his financial affairs. And somebody came in one day and said to Coward, uh, told him that uh, the accountant had shot, him, had, uh, had shot himself. And uh, Coward said, I had no idea he was such a good shot. <laughs> uh, D. I've only got one D. Um, under the Ds, it's an American uh, actress, Betsy Drake. She was a film actress and one of Cary Grant's five, uh, five wives. And... Uh, um, long after she'd uh, been divorced, she divorced Cary Grant. She was on Aristotle Onassis's yacht, and the first night, and she was perched on a bar stool having her martini. Uh, when one of the other guests said, "Betsy, you'll never guess what Aristotle has covered the seats of his bar stools with," 
And she said, no, what has Aristotle covered the seats of his bar stools with? And uh, the other guest said, he's covered them with whale's scrotum. And she shot up and said, oh my God, I'm sitting on Moby's dick. <laughs> uh, under the under the ease, we've got uh, Dame Edith Evans, a um, great fav favorite of mine. During the war, Dame Edith lived, uh, uh, well, she lived uh, always afterwards uh, in chambers in Albany, uh, Piccadilly, nearly opposite Fortnum and Mason. And during the war, she went in to Fortnum's on one occasion. Uh, and in, of course, during the war, we didn't have exotic fruits from abroad. And she was amazed and delighted to see a pineapple there. So she said, I'll have that. Uh, so they wrapped up the pineapple for her. And she proffered a pound note. Uh, and uh, they only gave her two shillings and sixpence in return. And she was disgusted at this. She thought it was a ridiculous price to pay for a pineapple. She said, keep the change. I trod on a grape on the way in. <laughs> Under, uh, <laughs> under the, the Fs, uh, there's Albert, Albert Finney, who in an early season, I think it was his first season with the National when they were trying out at Chichester, he was made a, he was at the University of East Sussex, made him a doctor of letters, and he got a call from his father saying, Doctor of letters? You haven't, we, you haven't even written us a bloody postcard in six months. It's rather like Noel Card when he heard that Laurence Olivier had been made a doctor of letters. He said, four, I presume. <laughs> Uh, first nights uh, come under F as well. It's another Coral Brown story. There was a, a tremendous production of a very obscure play, Seneca's Oedipus, at the National when they were at the Old Vic. And it had a lot of prestige attached to it. Everybody was expectant, uh, unusual play. John Gielgud playing Oedipus uh, and directed by, by Peter Brook. And I'll never forget the curtain rising on the first night. And there's nothing on the stage except this enormous 10-foot-high phallus and a shocked silence rang around the house. And nobody said anything past the gasp until Coral nudged Charles Gray, who was their escort, and said, no one we know. <laughs> the other thing about first nights is uh, first night of O'Calcutta, when Robert Helpman said, uh, the trouble with new dancing is that not everything stops with the music. <laughs> Under the... Uh, under the G's, Jill, Jill Gascoigne t told me once, uh, it's a, a, one of the dangers of the, of the job that uh, people get excited and write uh, filthy, awful, uh, poison pen letters to performers. And Jill got one of these one day, the usual thing, a lot of it heavily underlined, various different colors of ink. Uh, and she was just getting more and more upset as she read these appalling insinuations when she got to the bottom and it said, if undelivered, please forward to Jenny Agatha. You can't, uh, you can't uh, do the G's without mentioning John Gielgud. I'm always rather reluctant to do Gielgud stories because all actors can, do, can imitate Sir John, but I, I, he, he's not really in my, in my repertoire. But uh, he's such a source of stories. I suppose a lot of them go back to that famous um, habit of his of dropping bricks. Uh, he says instinctively the first thing which comes into his head without thinking. It goes back, the tradition goes back to the 20s when he was having lunch at the Ivy with a... Uh, a, a writer, a rather very boring writer called Edward Knobloch, and they were halfway through their meal, and he suddenly saw another really boring man coming towards them, and he managed to avoid his eye, prayed that Eddie Knobloch would avoid his eye as well, and indeed the man passed by, and Sir John turned to his guest and said, oh, thank God, 
Thank God you didn't catch his eye. He's an even bigger bore than Eddie Knobloch. <laughs> once, he once said of, uh, of uh, Ingrid Bergman, poor Ingrid, such a lovely woman, speaks five languages and can't act in any of them. <laughs> There's a marvelous mixture of, uh, of awareness of his own worth and modesty there. He always used to say... Uh, that he was very lucky in his unsympathetic friends. They would always, if he got above himself, they would always say, oh, stick a crown on his head and push him on. Uh, but he was, he was very aware of his, own, uh, of his own merit. And there's a charming story of Dirk Bogards in one of his autobiographies. They were making a film in France for Alan René called uh, Providence. And um, it was Alan René's birthday, and the crew, or the troupe, as the French call their film crews, had decided to buy him a present to celebrate it, and they decided to buy him uh, a tape recorder. Uh, and they knew how much he admired uh, Gielgud's voice, and so he, they, they wanted Gielgud to, uh, to, to tape the first message on it, saying, this is John Gielgud wishing you a happy birthday, Alain, on behalf of the troupe and the actors of Providence. Uh, now, Gielgud was very reluctant to do this. He insisted that Bogard was the star, and that he should do it. The crew, the troupe were dismayed, Bogard made one final effort. He writes, I knelt beside John's chair in my most supplicatory manner. I spoke to him in a low voice, for the troop had inched nearer anxiously. I was desperate. John, please, you probably have one of the most beautiful English-speaking voices in the world. He looked up over the top of his glasses. The most beautiful, he said sharply, <laughs> and spoke the message man who knows his value. There's a charming story again, which, another uh, rather risque one, this, but uh, I believe it's true. John Moffat, who's uh, very strong on these things, told me that it was uh, uh, true. Gielgud often directed in the old days, and uh, not always when he was playing in the piece. And he was directing one play for the West End, and um, they were in the middle of the rehearsal one morning, and the leading actor had a very long speech, and he decided that it would be rather effective to pause in the middle of, of this speech. So he got through half it, and then came the right moment, and he paused. Before he could go on, uh, Sir John said, no, no, don't pause, don't pause. Ah. And uh, so the actor said, but John, it's, it's a very long speech, and you know, if I pause, get my breath back, they have a chance to think about what I've said, prepare themselves for what I'm about. He said, no, no, don't pause, never pause in the West End. And the guy said, but Sir John, why, why not? Why not? Why not pause in the West End? Oh, no, never pause in the West End. I paused once in the West End, and in that awful silence, I heard a voice in the gallery say, oh, you beast, you've come all over my umbrella. Never pause in the West End. <laughs> um, Rex, uh, Rex Harrison's a charming story. Rex... Uh, met Robert Morley in the Burlington Arcade one morning. It was the morning after Robert had done uh, This Is Your Life, and Rex said, oh, Robert, I do so admire you. I do absolutely admire you. I mean, being able to go on This Is Your Life and carry it off. He said, I, my six marriages, I couldn't possibly do that. But then, Robert, of course, your life's been so much different from mine. One wife, one home, and if I may say so, one performance. <laughs> uh, Another Coral Brown story, Charlton Heston bring, brings this in. Coral, after she'd married Vincent Price, living in uh, Hollywood, uh, read that um, Charlton Heston was going to give his Macbeth 
at the Amundsen Theatre. So she rang the box office and said, I'd like two tickets for the first night of Charlton Heston's Macbeth. And the box office said, I'm terribly sorry, madam, but uh, it's totally sold out. I mean, it's absolutely, every seat is gone. So she tried to pull a bit of rank. She said, this is Carl Brown. I'd like two seats for the first night of Charlton Heston's Macbeth. Uh, I'm terribly sorry, Miss Brown, but as we say, there is not a single seat to be had in the house. This is Mrs. Vincent Price. I'd like two seats for the first night of Charlton Heston's Macbeth. Mrs. Price, we have told you, we cannot find you a seat for the first night of Charlton Heston's Macbeth. She said, right, I'll have two for immediately after the intermission. <laughs> Forgotten uh, playwright now, Ben Hecht, who wrote the, uh, with Charles MacArthur, the front page, an American playwright, started life as a Chicago journalist and might never have been... Uh, never have got to Hollywood if he hadn't been sacked from the uh, Chicago Tribune. He was sacked because he was a sub-editor and supplying sort of subtitles, uh, paragraph headings, and uh, he was supplying a paragraph heading for a case where uh, a dentist had been uh, convicted of interfering with a lady patient, and uh, unfortunately Ben Hecht's got sense of humor got the better of him, and the subtitle that he produced was Dentist Fills Wrong Cavity. Uh, Catherine, uh, Catherine Hepburn lives uh, on in, or lived in Turtle Bay. I think she's she's very she's 90 now and, and very frail. I think she's moved to Connecticut, but she had a house next to my friend Stephen Sondheim in Turtle Bay. And uh, on one occasion, she was a very feisty old lady about 10 years ago. And uh, there was one of those enormous uh, snowstorms, blizzards in New York, and there were snowdrifts piled up all over the place, and no, none more more high than in Turtle Bay. And with this splendid old dame covered herself, put on the long johns and the coats and the overcoats and the scarves and the shawls and the, practically the balaclavas, and came out and was shoveling away the snow from uh, in front of her, her door from the sidewalk. And a little American uh, woman walked by, a little New Yorker, and uh, she sort of stopped and paused and did a double take because she knew there was a famous face inside all this wrapping. So she looked at it for quite a long time and then finally said, you're Joan Croft. And uh, the theatre manager, who was very greedy, was also terribly impressed uh, by the effectiveness of this, uh, of what had happened with the little man shouting out from the gallery. So he greedily decided that he would try and repeat the effect in the second part uh, and put a plant up in the gallery. Uh, well, the same thing happened. Joseph Locke came out and made the announcement. Uh, the same comment was made from the balcony. Whether some people, as fans tend to do, had booked for both shows or whether the timing was a bit off, Anyway, the house went mad with fury. The entire theatre was ripped up. Uh, and it's a lesson to theatre managers not to try and be too greedy. One thing I missed in, uh, in Act One was a little section on the critics. I did tell you that I wasn't too keen on those uh, very smart uh, critical, just, uh, critical justification, critical uh, broadsides which dismiss the work of playwrights or directors or actors uh, who've worked in the case of playwrights perhaps over years, months, with the uh, uh, directors and, and weeks with the actors. Uh, the classic occasion is uh, uh, the uh, adaptation of um, uh, Christopher Isherwood's Berlin stories by John Van Druten into a play called I Am a Camera, which later became the basis of the book of Cabaret. Uh, but one, uh, it, was a, it was a remarkably good play, had a very good performance by uh, Julie Harris in New York, and yet uh, one New York critic was so clever that he simply dismissed it with the lines, I'm a camera, no liker. <laughs> However, there are some good ones. Um, 
John Mason Brown wrote of Tallulah Bankhead in Antony and Cleopatra. Tallulah Bankhead barged down the Nile last night as Cleopatra and sank. Uh, <laughs> W.A. Darlington in the Daily Telegraph on Richard Briars's Hamlet. Richard Briars last night played Hamlet like a demented typewriter. Uh, Briars' reply was, not a great Hamlet, but I was about the fastest. Haywood Brune, an American critic, told his readers reviewing some Broadway comedy, the play opened at 8.40 sharp and closed at 10.40 dull. <laughs> Creston Clark, an American actor touring as King Lear, was reviewed by the Denver Post. Their critic, Mr. Eugene Field, wrote, Mr. Clark played the king all evening under the constant fear that someone else was about to play the ace. <laughs> and when... When Glenda Jackson came out in the film of Women in Love as Gudrun, it caused Jack DeManio, the old Radio 4 uh, commentator, to comment much more sharply than usual that she had a face to launch a thousand dredgers. <laughs> I can't remember who it was. One American critic I liked, he'd been to a musical, and he said at the end, his last sentence was, I've knocked everything but the chorus girl's legs. The good Lord got there before me. So now we're into, uh, we're into the M's, and we'll start with, uh, with great Irish actor Michael McClearmore. He's just had a sort of revival in London because uh, Simon Callow put on a, a splendid reconstruction of uh, McClearmore's performance, uh, a one-man show, as, uh, as Oscar Wilde remembering. Uh, McClearmore, the great Irish actor, was, of course, not Irish at all. He was born in North London. His real name was Alfred Wilmore, but he fell in love with the idea of Ireland, and he moved there, learnt the Gaelic, uh, changed his name from Alfred Wilmore to Michael McClearmore, got this wonderful rolling Irish accent he imported into his personality, and um, was an extraordinarily um, charismatic performer. Uh, I met him when he did his own, the original version of the, uh, of the Oscar Wilde one-man show, uh, and it was rather sweet. I took him down. I was directing a television program with Cliff Mitchamore called Tonight in those days. And I remember picking him up from his hotel in Half Moon Street and taking him down to Lime Grove Studios uh, to talk about this, plug it on the Tonight program. And I said, what interested you? How did you become, first of all, interested in Oscar Wilde? And he said, well, it was extraordinary. He said, when I was a boy, I was a totally affected accent, but he kept it for about 50 years. So there's no point in his getting rid of it then. Yeah, it was extraordinary. When I was a boy, he said, a very young boy, I was reading uh, the fairy stories of Oscar Wilde, and I thought they were extraordinarily beautiful. Uh, and I became very excited by them, and I kept asking people about Oscar Wilde, but there was always a feeling of suspicion about it. Uh, and I couldn't work out what this was. So eventually I said to my father, what, was the, what is the mystery of Oscar Wilde? And my father said, uh, he said, why do you want to know? And I said, I have been reading the fairy stories. My father said, ah, well, you see. I think it's a beautiful explanation for an eight-year-old boy. The thing about Oscar Wilde was that he wanted to turn boys into girls. Seems a marvelous way of keeping the vocabulary of fairy stories to explain a fact of, a fact of life. Um, he and his partner, Hilton Edwards, um, were immensely popular in, in Dublin uh, over the years, especially because they'd founded one of the two great Dublin theatres. The, the other one was the Abbey, the, um, the home of Yeats and O'Casey and of the Irish language plays, uh, whereas uh, Hilton Edwards and McClearmore in their theatre, The Gate, uh, were much more inclined to put on adventurous, uh, experimental European uh, uh, sort of drama. However, the uh, James Montgomery, a splendid, uh, American, uh, splendid Irish film uh, critic and censor, 
defined the two theatres, the gate and the, the abbey, beautifully. He said, uh, the gate and the abbey, ah, yes, Sodom and Begorra. <laughs> there was, uh, as I say, they were, I think they had the freedom of Dublin. Taxi drivers would uh, refuse to charge them if they got into their cabs. They were much loved there, and there was no sense of scandal about their relationship. Uh, till one, just once, I suppose it was an English muckraking journalist who'd come over to try and whip up some scandal about it, and he could get nobody to tell him any dirt on uh, McLearmore and Edwards. Uh, so he finally thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go and see the woman who lives opposite their house. <coughs> She's bound to have some stories to tell. So he knocked on the door. Little old Irish lady came out, and he said, I do live opposite uh, McLear, Mr. McLearmore and uh, Mr. Hilton Edwards. You, you must have seen some pretty amazing sights, I dare say, behind those, those windows. And she said, no, I can tell you, this is an extremely beautifully run house. I can tell you with my word of honor, I have never seen a woman cross the threshold. <laughs> also under the M's, moving a bit forward, David Mamet, the great uh, uh, master of colloquial language in America. This may be a folk tale, but I got it from um, the autobiography of Helen Hayes, who was a grand old uh, American actress, roughly, I suppose, the equivalent of Sybil Thorndike in this country. Uh, and so although, again, this one ends in a four-letter word, uh, I feel that I've got Helen Hayes's blessing because she puts it in her book. Story goes that uh, a rich man is walking along Street Broadway, walking along the sidewalk, and there's a beggar in the gutter, and the beggar holds out his hand, and the rich man looks down and says, neither a borrower nor a lender be William Shakespeare. And the beggar looks up and says, fuck you, David Mamet. Ian, uh, Ian McKellen, a few years ago, founded a wonderfully democratic organization called the, the Actors' Company, and the splendid idea was that leading actors uh, in the repertory should sometimes play leading parts and sometimes play small parts, and that small part actors should sometimes get the leading parts too. Two actors meet in the street, and one says the other, isn't it wonderful about Ian McKellen's company, the democracy of it? You know what he's playing in the next production? And the other one said, no, what is he playing in the next production? He's playing the third waiter. What's the play called? The Third Waiter. <laughs> and there's one story I always like correcting, because I heard it from, as it were, the horse's mouth. There was a, there was a great um, songwriter, Eric Mashwitz. He had also been, before the war, uh, the head of BBC Radio Light Entertainment. In the late 50s, early 60s, he became the head of BBC Television Light Entertainment. But he was also the lyric writer who wrote the words for uh, These Foolish Things, Room 504, Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square, and he also wrote um, a play called Goodnight Vienna, which had a great success in London and then was made into a movie with Jack Buchanan and uh, Anna Neagle. <coughs> and Eric was coming back from the coast one night, driving through South London, and he went through Lewisham. And he suddenly saw that the sort of third tour of Goodnight Vienna was playing at the Lewisham Hippodrome. So he thought it would be rather nice to go in and see the old war horse. So in, uh, in he went uh, up the stairs, saw the commissioner, and the commissioner uh, greeted him, and he said, how is Goodnight Vienna doing in Lewisham? And the commissioner said, about as well as you'd expect Goodnight Lewisham to do in Vienna. <laughs> I, I hear that one told uh, happening in all sorts of places, but uh, it certainly happened to Eric, and that's where he told me it happened. Under the M's also, marvelous American actress Sylvia Miles um, we saw her here in Tennessee Williams via Carré, and she was, of course, in, in that film uh, Midnight Cowboy. Uh, but um, 
Victor Spinetti tells the story of her walking down uh, the street in New York with her friend uh, Tennessee Williams, and they, Tennessee looks across the street and sees this incredibly thin woman and says, uh, uh, Sylvia, look at that woman. She is so thin. And Sylvia looks across and says, oh, Tennessee, that's anorexia nervosa. And she says, Sylvia, you know everybody. <laughs> One time when she had a, a, a first happy and then, as often happens, unhappy relationship with a guy who was, uh, who was gay, and after they, they broke up, she was inconsolable. She used to go to the actor's bar, Joe, Joe Allen's, uh, nightly and drink more than was, was wise, but it probably uh, eased the pain, I suppose. Anyway, she was there one night, and she was really in a bad state, and a rather impressive tall black waiter sort of took pity on her, concern for her, went across and said, would you like some coffee, Miss Miles? And she said, uh, and he, unfortunately, sort of setting it up, said, uh, how would you like your coffee, Miss Miles? And she looked him up and down and said, uh, like my men. And he said, we don't serve no gay coffee here, Miss Miles. <laughs> also, under the M's, there's, um, well, it has to be my fair lady. Uh, I don't know how many people remember, but I don't think there's ever been quite the same sense of anticipation uh, for a London opening before My Fair Lady arrived. Uh, it was extraordinary, and the, the house was totally sold for months on end. There was never an empty seat. Um, indeed, it was so popular that burglars used to pay over the, over the odds for a couple of seats for My Fair Ladies, mark out the house they wanted to burgle, post the two seats anonymously, and people would be so delighted, off they'd go, and the burglars had a clear field. Uh, well, a friend of mine was front of house manager at the Drury Lane Theatre at the time, and um, uh, he was uh, patrolling the circle one night before the play started, looked down in the stalls, and horror of horrors, he saw an empty seat, first empty seat he'd ever seen about six months in. He thought, is this the beginning of the end? Are they about to fall off? So he waited for the interval, shot down in the interval, shot into the seat where, which had been empty, and there was a woman sitting next to it. And he said, this is a great intrusion, madam. I'm terribly sorry, I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm so fascinated. We have not had an empty seat since the run of the play started. Uh, and I, I just wondered if there was a, an easy explanation. She said, well, it is very sad. We had, my husband and I, we had been looking forward so much to seeing My Fair Lady. Indeed, we applied very early. We were delighted when we got our tickets. We'd been looking forward to it. And then my husband died. And he said, that's awful. I really shouldn't have asked and shouldn't have brought all that flooding back to you, madam. Uh, but uh, there is one thing. Um, couldn't you have asked a friend? She said, no, they're all at the funeral. <laughs> Under the ends, a um, wonderful old actress, Kathleen Nesbitt, had played uh, Rex Harrison's mother in the original production of My Fair Lady in New York. And when Rex wanted to revive it many years later, uh, he was well into the 70s, and uh, there was really nobody old enough to convincingly play his mother. Uh, so they got Kathleen Nesbitt again, who was on the, on the, the verge of 90. And uh, she was indomitable. Out she came, played it in New Orleans where they opened. They got to San Francisco. And she actually became 90 the day they opened, the night they opened in San Francisco. And so all the papers were full of this 90-year-old actress opens triumphantly in My Fair Lady. Uh, and uh, so when, uh, what is it, second or third scene, uh, Mrs. Higgins comes on, the entire audience rose in a massive standing ovation. And Kathleen Nesbitt did a very low bow and thought it was the standing ovation for the end of the play and exited. <laughs> 
they got her back. Um, I'm very, very keen on overheards in the theatre. It's a long tradition. It goes back, perhaps apocryphally, to the time when, Catherine, when uh, Sarah Bernhardt played um, uh, Cleopatra and Antony and Cleopatra in, in London. And the story goes that there was some society dame coming out at the end of Antony and Cleopatra and turned to her escort and said, how very unlike the home life of our own dear queen. Well, I remember seeing a, a production in Chichester with Sir John Clements and Margaret Leighton. Going across the car park afterwards, I heard one woman turn to another and say, something very similar happened to Monica. <laughs> Some... Uh, some American theatre goers are quite good to listen to. I remember my first um, Julius Caesar at St Stratford on Avon. I remember coming out behind two American dames. One turned to the other and said, "Gee, that Brutus was he noble." Uh, and then uh, jo Dr. Jonathan Miller's Three Sisters at the Cambridge Theatre. Another two American tourists came out, and one turned to the other and said, "More a play than a show, wasn't it?" <laughs> There's a classic story of when uh, Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee were in that wonderfully bloodthirsty Shakespearean play, Titus Andronicus at Stratford, directed by Peter Brook. And here it's the one where uh, limbs are torn off, people are decapitated, tongues are pulled out, uh, and two boys are, uh, are killed and baked in a pie, and the pie is fed to their mother. It's that sort of, uh, that sort of stirring drama. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, Martin Tickner, was going across the car park behind two sort of ca a county pair, and uh, the man <laughs> turned to his wife and said, all we need now is to find that the dog's been sick in the back of the car. <laughs> get, it, uh, get it sometimes in the, uh, the theatre. There's a story of a production of Macbeth and he's just got to tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow the low lady in the front row says oh that'll be Friday <laughs> I always remember when we were doing uh, a show called um, Side by Side by Sondheim at the um, at the Wyndham Theatre uh, David Kernan who was one of the three singers with Millicent Martin and Julia McKenzie uh, was singing a very pretty little song uh, Anyone Can Whistle very quiet moment and suddenly, again, there were two old ladies sitting just where you are, madam. Uh, and one looked at the other, and I heard her say in a very loud voice at the tenderest moment of the song, Oh, look, turnips are coming back. <laughs> Judy, uh, Judy Dench swears that uh, uh, when she and Ian, uh, Ian McShane and Ian McKellen uh, were in a Russian play, The Promise, three-act Russian play at the... Playhouse at Oxford, uh, and they were, it was full of Russian gloom all the way through. And in the third act, they finally came in, and they were covered, swathed in furs and fur hats, and probably snow on their boots. Uh, and they trudged in, and they could hardly play the third act because one old lady sitting there, in this case, uh, had looked up at the stage and said, Oh, anybody think they was in Russia? <laughs> Some. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes uh, it can even happen afterwards. I remember when we, we took uh, Side by Side by Sondheim to, to New York, to Broadway, and played at the Music Box Theatre, and it was all right for the three singers. They were still singing Stephen Sondheim's songs, but I was sitting on a stool at the side of the stage, and having to try and 
uh, I don't know, sort of make people emphasize, make people realize that Sondheim songs are tremendously socially relevant today and try and bind them in with a sort of running commentary and a few jokes. Well, in, in England uh, at that time, you only had to say Mary Whitehouse or Jeremy Thorpe and everybody laughed. Well, that sort of thing doesn't cross the Atlantic. Uh, so I had to get a very talented American writer in to sort of work a translation, as it were, for me. And uh, he did this brilliantly. And after a few nights, I was beginning to get quite confident about this. And the laughs were coming. And it all seemed very good. And at the end of one performance, I rushed out of the stage door to get into Charlie's bar next door and have my large vodka martini. Uh, and I'm afraid that coming out a bit too eagerly, quite sober, but too eager, I went sort of arse over tip down the steps and finished up in the gutter. Uh, looking up while the audience was still coming out, pouring out of the music box. Uh, and they went past, and two young men went by whom I can only in retrospect describe as vicious queens. Um, <laughs> and one, they looked down pityingly, and then one turned to the other and said, funnier than anything she did on the stage. <laughs> uh, under uh, P, uh, we've got parents. Again, Judy Dench, a terribly honest uh, woman swears to me that it's true and I had sort of uh, confirmation of it from a, I, I was doing one of these High Wycombe some time ago and a woman came up and said you know that story is absolutely true I knew Judy's mother very well I can believe it entirely the story goes that she was playing uh, Juliet in the famous Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet at the, at the old Vic uh, with John Stride and Peggy Mount as the nurse and she got to that moment in the play where Juliet turns to the nurse and says where is my mother and my father nurse and suddenly, Judy was amazed. Her mother shot up and said, Here we are, darling, in the stalls, age 27 and 8. <laughs> and she's, she is an honest girl. She's confirmed. And now I have a bit of independent evidence as well for it. Uh, when we were doing Side by Side, our supervisory musical director was also conducting uh, a chorus line at uh, Drury Lane, you know, that, that uh, splendid musical about uh, a lot of. Uh, dancers auditioning to be in a in a cabaret troupe and um, Ray Cook was an Australian the the musical director and uh, his mother and father came over because he had these two hit shows running in the West End so they came over from Australia and when they went to see uh, uh, to see chorus line they came around afterwards and uh, Ray said well do you like it mum and his mother said well it's all right and he said what do you mean it's all right she said well do the same people get the parts every night and Ray said, yes, they do. She said, hardly worth the rest coming in, was it? <laughs> uh, you've, um, you've had uh, um, Harold Pinter here this week, haven't you? Um, everybody, of course, knows uh, Harold as a great uh, playwright. Not so many people are uh, aware that he's a very considerable poet as well um, and a great cricket fan. And so is his friend, uh, the uh, other playwright, Simon Gray, and uh, Simon tells the story of, on one occasion, he got a phone call from Harold uh, saying, Simon, I've, I've just written a poem, a poem about cricket. I'd like to have your opinion on it. And so Simon said, well, fax it over, Harold. I'm dying to see it. And uh, a few moments later, click, 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 the fax started to go. And um, Simon was rather puzzled. As, as the fax came up, there were only two lines on it. The poem appeared to read, I saw Hutton in his prime. Another time, another time. And Simon thought, well, I can't really ring Harold and say a new Wordsworth is upon us. Uh, I think I'll leave it. Well, that's, of course, the one thing you can't do with Pinter. Next day, a very aggrieved Pinter got on the phone and said, Simon, you haven't told me what you thought of my poem. And 
Simon said, thinking very quickly, well, Harold, I haven't actually finished it yet. <laughs> under the, uh, under the peas, uh, we're back to Coral Brown, because it's Vincent Price. Um, it was a very moving um, um, mass for uh, Coral when she died at, at Palm Street. And Vincent, uh, who'd already got Parkinson's, was too ill to come over. Uh, but he'd asked Alan Bates, who was a great friend of both of them, uh, to, to address the congregation. And Alan said, uh, uh, Vincent said, I, I mustn't tell any Coral Brown stories uh, because far too many uh, people in the, in the congregation will A, know them, or B, may have starred in them to their disadvantage. However, he said, it was a rather wicked glint, he didn't say I couldn't tell Vincent Price stories. Uh, he said he called the Price household uh, some months before Coral died and said, they got Vincent and said, uh, can I speak to Coral? And Vincent said, no, she's out. She's gone to confession. I think she'll be away a very long time. <laughs> and the other one was um, some years before Alan had uh, led a company of uh, John Osborne's Splendid Play Patriot for me, which started at Chichester, went to the Haymarket, and then had gone to the Amundsen in Los Angeles. And um, there were half a dozen English actors in the company. And uh, Coral and uh, Vincent asked them out to dinner after a performance. So they went to this splendid uh, Hollywood restaurant. And they'd hardly settled when a rather pushy American lady came over, banged her autograph book down in front of Vincent and said, sign here. Uh, and she turned to talk to Coral. And Alan was horrified to see Vincent open the book, get out his pen, and write across two pages in very large letters, Dolores Del Rio. Closed the book, gave it back. Woman went away happy. Alan said, Vincent, she's going to be furious. When she opens that book, she'll be furious. She'll probably come round and pour soup over you. Vincent said, no, Alan, I have to do that. I saw Dolores just before she died. And she said, Vincent, don't let them ever forget me. So now I always sign Dolores. <laughs> Uh, always difficult finding um, stories under the initial Q, uh, but the splendid uh, forthright actor Dennis Quilly comes to our aid here. Dennis, um, I'm sure you all know from distinguished career in musicals on television, he's now with Peter Hall's company at the Old Vic, a uh, wonderful actor and a very splendid sort of no-nonsense chap. And Dennis was cast rather oddly, uh, perhaps, by uh, Dr. Jonathan Miller in School for Scandal at the National as the sort of arch... Um, camp, bish, uh, bitchy, gossipy character, Sir Benjamin Backbite. I mean, it's all in the name. Uh, and I think Dennis was originally told this and thought this would be a fascinating challenge and uh, how lovely to be playing something so far from his own character. Uh, however, as rehearsals went on, he found that he had absolutely nothing in common with Sir Benjamin and no way of getting any sort of handle, any sort of purchase on the characterization. And he got more and more worried and anxious about it, and eventually went home and talked to Stella, his wife, one night, and said, look, I really can't get any idea about this arch-gossip bitch character, uh, Sir Benjamin Backbite. And uh, Stella said, well, Dennis, you know, I mean, it's, it's ask Jonathan. He's a terrific director. I'm sure he'll give you a full explanation. You'll, you'll, he'll find the clue for you immediately. And Dennis said, I know, but it seems so childish that I can't solve it for myself. However, you're, you're absolutely right. It's ridiculous messing about. I will talk to Jonathan tomorrow. Went up to Jonathan the next day and said, Jonathan, I, I'm terribly worried about Spenger and Backbite. I have nothing. I don't understand. Can't get anywhere near this bitchy, gossipy character. And Jonathan said, have you ever met Ned Sherrin? Oh, said Dennis. 
absolutely understand it, never a moment's problem afterwards. <laughs> under the, uh, under the R's, we can't, uh, can't miss Sir Ralph, Sir Ralph Richardson. He was in a, in a not very good play towards the end of his life, and it was tottering around on tour. It eventually came to the Savoy Theatre and played a few weeks, but it was never going to be a success. And he got to, um, got to Richmond, and uh, at the end of the second, towards the end of the second act, the rest of the cast were amazed to see Sir Ralph walk towards the front of the stage and say, is there a doctor in the house? Usual shock silence, who's ill? And then a little man at the back, I am a doctor. Oh, doctor, isn't this a terrible play? <laughs> I was, uh, I was very fond of, uh, of Beryl Reed, who died recently, and her memorial service, Harry Seacombe, uh, led off, saying that she was a real star, um, a superstar in the days when a superstar is somebody who's shaken Andrew Lloyd Webber by the hand, and a megastar is somebody who has refused to shake Andrew Lloyd Webber by the hand. Uh, my favorite uh, story about Beryl, though, was she lived in a sweet little house, funny little house called Honeypots on the banks of the Thames at Raysbury, and she was minding her own business one day with her cats and looked out of the window and saw somebody getting out of a boat to come ashore and obviously visit her, somebody she didn't want to see. She had the presence of mind to throw open the window and say, go away, I'm in bed with somebody I don't know very well. <laughs> uh, there's a tradition, of course, in the theatre for sort of scrambled titles. Many a play has been helped to an early grave by a frivolous parody of the title. Flower Drum Song only just survived Ken Tynan's inspired retitling The World of Woozy Song. Uh, there was a monolithic, boring uh, musical in London in 1991 called The Children of Eden, which didn't benefit from being known as The Children of Neesden. <laughs> Joshua Logan, an American director, um, produced a deep south cherry orchard, which he called the, Wist uh, the Wisteria trees, quickly became known as Southern Fried Chekhov. <laughs> Noel Card called it a month in the wrong country. <laughs> Ivan Novello musicals were always fair game. Uh, many of the spoof titles were traced back to Novello himself. For, for Glamorous Night, he read Amorous Bite. Careless Rapture, he called Careless Rupture. The Dancing Years became the Prancing Queers. Uh, perchance to Dream, Her Chance to Scream, King's Rhapsody, Queen's Bounty, and his last musical, Gaze the Word, needed no scrambling. <laughs> it was a great rivalry, sort of, all the time. Friendly, but they were friends, but also rivals between Noel Coward and, um, and Ivan Novello. Uh, and uh, Coward was uh, doing a play at the Phoenix. He always wrote, directed, and starred for three months and uh, not longer in his own plays. Uh, and he'd played very successfully his three months at the Phoenix Theatre and had rehearsed a, a new actor who was going to take over. Uh, and the first night of the new actor, he came in for the first time through the, the front doors of the house as opposed to in through the stage door. And the commissioner stopped him. Where are you going? And Coward was very offended and said, uh, I know, man, I, I wrote this play. I directed this play. And I starred in this play for the last three months. And the commissioner said, oh, regular Ivan the fellow, aren't we? <laughs> sweet, uh, sweet old actress um, who lived to be over 100, Athene Siler, peerless comedienne. She summed up once the frustration of mature actresses when bright new directors happen upon the scene and don't really know uh, the, the 
track record of, of actors or actresses. Uh, one of these summoned her to the television center, having apparently looked through spotlights and was unaware of her reputation, though her face looked right for the sort of role of the old bag that he was casting. Having settled her before his desk, he revealed his ignorance with a single question. He said, and what have you done? Athene was having none of that. She simply replied, you mean since breakfast? On her, um, she did a she did a desert island disc when she was over hundred, and uh, told of going to the Caprice for a professional lunch. She was wearing an elaborate hat of which she was particularly proud. She was mortified to see another woman across the room wearing an identical hat. She made the best of it, uh, performed elaborate pantomimes, smiling, pointing at her own hat and then pointing at the other lady's hat, and all sorts of signs. She was greeted with puzzled stares and then irritation, annoyance, and finally a head turned away. Although she thought. I did my best. On getting home, she looked into the mirror to find that she was wearing a quite different hat. <laughs> <laughs> the mantle of um, the mantle of Coral Brown has fallen, I suppose, now on uh, on Dame Maggie Smith, um, but a wonderfully uh, sharp tongue <clears throat> and an inventive wit. She was, um, of course, uh, splendid as Desdemona in that. Uh, um, John Dexter production of Olivier as Othello. Uh, but Maggie's always had these rather pinched vowels, and she was given a lot of grief by uh, Olivier on the way round in the tour, saying that she must look after her vowels and look after her voice production and that sort of thing. And she got rather irritated, and even more irritated when they came into London, and uh, she got notices as good, if not better, than, than Olivier's were. And he still kept on going on about her, her voice production and her vowels. She bided her time until one night he got into his full black makeup and was just ready to leave the dressing room, uh, black from head to foot, and she put her head round the door and said, How now, brown cow? <laughs> she was, uh, she was, um, he was trying to persuade her to stay at the National at the time, but wasn't offering her parts that appealed to her. Uh, and he was getting rather irritated by this, and uh, eventually he gave her, he offered her, uh, Sabina, Vivian Lee's old triumphant part in Thornton Wilder's Skin of Our Teeth. And Maggie read it and thought it was terribly dated and didn't want to do it. And he was absolutely livid. He thought he'd made the supreme gesture, a part that Vivian had been great in. Uh, and uh, they were playing Othello that night and came the scene towards the end uh, when he strikes her with a parchment. Uh, and he, the, he went a little out of control. The, the, the resentment built up and he hit her. Uh, with the parchment so hard that she blacked out for a moment, fell into Colin Blakely's arms. Olivier had to sweep off with his exit, and Colin was left dragging the semi-conscious uh, Maggie off. Into what she didn't open an eye till she got in the wings, and then she opened one eye and said, first time I've seen stars at the National Theatre. <laughs> she went shopping in Fortnum's uh, to buy a bra once, unfortunately uh, with Kenneth Williams, and when he... <laughs> When he heard the price, he said, seven guineas for a bra, cheaper to have your tits off. <laughs> when, when she had her great triumph in Peter Schaffer's Lettuce and Love It, she played it very successfully here. Then she went to New York, got all the Tonys uh, there, and um, it was going terribly well. But they were playing in the Barrymore Theatre, uh, and the uh, Longacre, which was which backed onto it was, uh, was dark. There was nothing in there until about halfway through the run uh, when one of those wonderful exuberant black sort of gospel shows, all kicking legs and smiling teeth and wonderful noise and 
drums and things uh, opened at the Long Acre, and it opened at a, ma a Wednesday matinee. And uh, the, the sound of this wonderful exuberant show kept drumming through into, onto Dame Maggie's stage, and she was very, very um, tense about this. And there's a curious chemistry in the theatre where...